Hey, this is Kenny. Thanks for listening to Behind the Drapes. The goal of the show is to inspire and give insight into the healthcare system through the lens of an anesthesiologist. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the channel so that you get new episodes as they come out. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Behind the Drapes podcast. We are on part two of our Investing for Retirement two-part series. We have back here Tracy Cahill, um, who did an excellent job in part one describing all of the retirement strategies to do when you're in your residency. Uh, We talked about topics like a traditional versus a Roth IRA, a 401k versus a 403b, how much uh, percentage of your income you should be saving towards retirement. Um, And now in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the expectations are when you're in attending and you start making more money. Uh, So welcome back to the show, Tracy. Thanks, Kenny. Glad to be back. Uh, So for some of the people who are just jumping into this episode and didn't hear the previous episode, do you mind just giving a little bit of background of what you do for work and who you work for? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am a financial advisor. I work with equitable advisors. Um, we do a lot of retirement income planning and really designed around, you know, helping people plan for retirement. I would say our ideal client at this point, the team that I work with is focusing on people that are, you know, maybe within 10 years of retirement or getting ready to retire. Um, that's not all we work with, but that definitely seems to be the ideal client at this point. Perfect. And with any financial professional job, there's always a disclosure to place whenever you're talking about things that revolve around your job and financial advice. Um, So here's your plug to give your little uh, business disclosure. Awesome. So yeah, just like uh, like I mentioned last time, no statements made should constitute as fiduciary recommendations, tax or legal advice. Uh, Information is intended to be educational and is not a solicitation for a service or any type of security. Boom. Now the company can approve these two episodes. We're good to go. Perfect. All right. So like I mentioned, in this episode, I'd love to focus on that financial jump that we take from being a resident to now making six figures. Uh, a lot of times you can be making 150 plus um, upwards of even like 500K. And again, we're going into that situation with very little financial literacy background. Um, And so we're either relying on ourselves or advisors like you to help us make the right decisions with our money. Um, One of the things that we've sort of spitballed and talked about sort of behind the scenes was this concept of a backdoor Roth. It's something I'd heard about before our conversations just from listening to podcasts. Um, And I've talked to some people who have done it in their own personal life as well. Uh, But this is probably the best way to start this conversation, um, since it's finally going to become available to people who are now making those six figures. Yeah, absolutely. So to piggyback on what we talked about in the last episode, um, there's two types of IRAs. There's a traditional IRA where you get the tax benefits today, um, but you pay the taxes in retirement. Makes sense for a very high income earner because they're going to get a bigger deduction. Um, Then there's a Roth IRA where you get no tax deductions this year, but all the growth on that account will be tax-free in retirement. However, the IRS, every single year, they put an income limit on how much you can make um, before they start pricing you out of or eliminating your ability to contribute to a Roth IRA. Um, I believe in 2023, that number is 144,000 adjusted gross income. 
um, if you're filing single. If you're married filing jointly, I believe it's closer to about 214,000, um, maybe off by a couple thousand bucks there. They always adjust these numbers for inflation. Um, so to your point, you know, if we have doctors making three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, maybe they're married to a doctor as well. Um, it, it essentially eliminates your ability to contribute to a regular Roth IRA. Um, there is a little bit of a workaround. It's a um, it's called a backdoor Roth IRA. Whoever named it that, I don't know where they came up with that. They almost made it sound illegal, um, but it's not. <laughs> what you actually do is you make a $6,000 contribution or however much you want to make for a contribution um, to what's called a non-deductible IRA. And then you immediately convert it to a Roth IRA. Um, so you're able to do the same contribution limit. So you're able to do um, up to 6,500 per year if you're under the age of 50, up to 7,500 if you're over the age of 50. Um, and you can also do this backdoor Roth on top of a regular Roth contribution. So if you make below those income limits, you could do your 6,500 to a Roth IRA. And then you could also do 6,500 through the backdoor Roth IRA channel. So it's a little bit involved. You have to create a couple of different accounts and do a conversion. But the idea is you take a $6,500 deduction and you immediately convert it, which triggers a $6,500 taxable event. So it basically comes out as a wash, but now everything's growing tax-free. Hmm. And is this uh, simple enough for that somebody could do in their home on a computer and open up their own accounts and do this transfer? I think with some basic research and a general idea of uh, the mechanisms that go into play, I think absolutely. Um, a 401k provider um, that makes it very easy to do something like this is if you work with, I know a lot of hospitals use Fidelity um, yeah. as their 403b or 401k provider. Um, you can talk to a rep at Fidelity, kind of let them know what you're looking to do, and they can very easily walk you through it. Um, so you get kind of the guidance of an advisor. Um, but it's just someone in a call center. It's not necessarily a, a local advisor or someone that you need to pay or compensate in any certain way. Um, it's usually a, a resource that's available through through the hospital's plan. Cool. And then as uh, people are sort of transferring jobs and starting new plans, you have this option to combine your previous retirement plans. Do you see any benefit versus of um, combining those plans versus keeping them separate? Yeah, so whenever you change employers, I always tell people you have four different options. The first option, which isn't a good one, is you're able to withdraw the money where you pay some penalties and taxes. So that's option one, and it's not a very good option. Option two, you can leave the money right where it is in the old employer's plan. Um, the downside to that is you're going to be tied to the investment options that are available inside of that plan. Um, you can then, the third option is to move it to your new employer's plan. People usually like that because consolidation just makes it a little bit easier. I would say the one downside is now we only have the new employer's investment lineup available. Um, the fourth option, the one that I usually lean towards the most, is you can roll over a previous employer's plan to an IRA, um, a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, depending on what the source of funds inside of that plan is. But the benefits of an IRA, Kenny, is more investment options. So like most 401ks, you can't pick single name stock. You know, but maybe you want to invest in Tesla or Amazon, Apple. Um, inside of an IRA, you just have a lot more investment options available. Um, where inside of a 401k or a 403b at the hospital or a company, you're usually limited to somewhere between 20 and 50 investment options. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
Um, before I want to get into, not they're bad. It's not that they're bad investment options. It's just you could get those same investment options in an IRA as uh -huh. well as a heck of a lot more. Sounds like a little bit more uh, wiggle room with the IRA. Um, so I want a lot more investment options. I definitely want to get into personal investing, um, but I had one quick question, which if you don't know the answer to this, it's totally okay because we didn't talk about it before. Um, but I've heard of concepts of people putting away money for their future kids, college funds um, or educational funds. Is that something that is like a standard way to do it? That's like a, a non-deductible fund like you were talking about, or is this something that people just do on the side and open up like an extra savings account? Yeah, there's a couple of um, efficient ways to save for those types of things. Um, for education savings, the most common one is called a 529 plan. Mm -hmm. Operates very similar to a Roth IRA, where all the growth on the account will be tax-free as long as it's used towards educational purposes. Um, the one downside to that plan is um, if, say, you set it up for your child, your child decides not to go to college, or you, there's never like a higher education cost, um, there can be some penalties for not using it towards education. There is some legislation right now trying to relax those rules a little bit where it would allow a parent to roll that type of fund into like a Roth IRA. So I do think that we see some easing of those rules in the future, but that's always been the big downside to those plans. Um, a nice common feature, you know, I don't want to keep harping on the Roth, but we always call the Roth the Swiss Army knife, you know, in, in our industry because it's it's got so many uses. Um, if you're making active contributions to a Roth, um, you're able to pull out your principal. So the amount that you've contributed you're able to pull that out penalty and tax free. You can't touch any of the gain before a certain age, um, but that's something that some clients have used to, they fund a Roth IRA with the idea that they're gonna take some of their principal back towards their children's education. Hmm. But in the event where maybe their child doesn't go to college or maybe more optimistic, they get a bunch of scholarships and they don't need the funds, they can keep it in a retirement account for themselves. Very cool. Um, and so these educational funds, they can be tapped into basically as soon as your child is in college and you start making tuition payments, or I guess if you took the route of getting loans and then started having to pay a uh, loan repayment. Correct. Yeah. When they originally set up, it was really designed towards college payments. The rules have relaxed a little bit these last couple of years where I believe like, even if they go to like a private high school, hmm. I believe it can be used for that. Um, you know, books at school, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the net has definitely widened a little bit for what you can use it for. Um, but I, I hope that answers your question, but it, it's, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Cause I, I hear commonly now there's a decent amount of people who are in my department who are at that age where they have young kids and they have this money and they're starting to save for future educational expenses. So I knew that this concept was out there, but it was nice to kind of Hear, hear the defin definition of it. Sure. Uh, so the next thing I think we should go into is personal investing, uh, because with this uh, rise in income comes a surplus of money if you keep a lot of the same living expenses that you had previously. And I think what a lot of people are tempted to do with that is get into the personal investment world. We went through a time frame during the pandemic where you know, you heard a lot about meme stocks and cryptocurrency, which we'll get into. Um, and people either, like we said before, you either know someone who made a lot of money or you know somebody who lost a lot of money. Um, and so I think that 
interested people in personal finance. And so I think we're a very vulnerable population to get into it without knowing too much about it before we find ourselves drowning. Um, so let's start with some of the simple things that somebody could do if they wanted to get into personal investing. Yeah, so I think first and foremost, I think a great way to start is to, you know, open up some type of brokerage account, you know, where you can invest in, you know, whether it be, you know, individual company stocks, uh, mutual funds, ETFs, or what's called index funds. Um, I think that's a great place to start. You know, we really, um, you know, we've gone through a relatively, you know, interesting three or four years where, you know, people our age, you know, we're in our early 30s, started making some money. And, you know, then the pandemic hit. And we saw a really big stock market correction. Um, you know, so anyone that was kind of able to put some money to work at that time probably saw a relatively nice recovery, depending on what they invested in. Um, so I, I think, you know, being able to get money in those type of brokerage accounts. Now, brokerage accounts are a little bit different than retirement accounts because they remain liquid. You don't get the tax benefits. So if you ever do sell out of a position, you will have to pay what's called a capital gains tax. Um, but that's a good thing. That means your investment grew. Um, so I think a brokerage account is a great place to start. Um, I'm a big believer in keeping it simple. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I, most of our brokerage fund, you know, Allie and I brokerage fund, it is, you know, mainly in S and P 500 index funds, you know, so that means it's invested in big United States companies, Apple's, Google's, Amazon's of the world. Um, you know, when the pandemic hit and a couple of companies really got hit hard, like cruises, airlines, you know, we bought some of those, you know, you know, with the idea that eventually they would recover and would get out of the pandemic. Um, but those were kind of one offs. So a bulk of our portfolio, you know, in our brokerage account is S&P 500. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to come in second place every year. You know, some years, you know, cryptocurrency might beat it. Um, but then last year, if you look at it, cryptocurrency was down, you know, 60, 70 percent. So it's um, it's not always going to be first place. And sometimes it can be a little bit boring. Sometimes we're always looking for the next Tesla, the next Apple. Um, and there's a spot for that inside of the portfolio. But I think a bulk, the meat and potatoes should be, you know, stocks that are, you know, what's called blue chip stocks, big United States companies. And can you just define what an index fund is versus individual stocks? Sure. So, um, an individual stock is going to be invested in an individual company. So if you have a share of Apple, you are technically an owner of the Apple company, a very small percentage. So as the Apple share price grows, yours will grow as well. Um, an index fund is going to pool a lot of different company stocks together. So it does a lot of the diversification for you. Um, so a very common one like these S&P 500 index funds, they're going to track exactly what's going on inside of the S&P 500. And since there's not a whole heck of a lot of managing, you know, they're not picking and choosing companies, taking companies out, adding companies in. Um, the cost on those are pennies on the thousands, you know, 0.001% sometimes. Sometimes Fidelity even offers them at zero cost. So very low fee. Um, and when you turn on the news and you hear that the S&P 500 was up 1% for the day, your index fund's probably going to be up 1% for the day. If it's down 1% for the day, you're going to be, so it's going to be very much mirroring what the S&P 500 is doing. Um, takes a lot of the day-to-day -day management out of it for you. Perfect. And then the other definition that I think people run into is what is the difference between a stock and a bond? Sure. So a stock is ownership in a company where a bond is a debt instrument. So you are a debt holder um, of whoever you took the bond out from. So um, 
stock prices um, tend to be tied to company performance, where a bond fund is oftentimes um, a guaranteed coupon payment that you will be receiving. Um, a bond is different than a bond mutual fund. I think that's where some people got a little bit tricked up this last year. Um, bond mutual funds are actually very sensitively tied to interest rates. They have an inverse relationship. Um, the easiest way to explain it is last year, as the interest rates really started to rise, more attractive bonds became available because now interest rates were higher. So people that were holding bond funds that were maybe two, three, four years old, they had less attractive rates in it. So the value of them actually fell because there were more attractive options out on the open market. So mm -hmm. um, the stock in the short of it is ownership in a company where a bond is you are a debt holder, meaning, you know, someone owes you a coupon payment. And is there are there times in your life where someone is going to favor uh, more stocks over bonds or more bonds over stocks in their portfolio? Yeah, I would say the general rule of thumb was always, you know, as you get close to retirement, you want 60 percent stocks, 40 percent bonds. Um, personally, we have kind of challenged that idea a little bit. You know, we think bonds have held up these last 20, 25 years up until last year because we were in a lowering interest rate environment. Interest rates were going down for a good 20 years. Um, eventually it hits an inflection point where during COVID interest rates were essentially pretty close to zero. And as inflation kind of got out of control, now interest rates needed to start going up. So bond prices were actually down almost as much as stocks last year. We also don't believe that they have nearly the upside potential that the stocks do. Um, so there are some alternative investments that are available out there um, that we've used as bond alternatives. Um, so I think that general rule of thumb of you want to have a certain amount of stocks, a certain amount of bonds, um, it worked for a while, but now as some of the economic market conditions are changing, it might be worth re-looking at what are some alternative options. And what are some common pitfalls that you see people run into when they take on personal investment? I think we're emotional creatures. You know, it's, um, you know, when, when the markets are turbulent, you know, some people like myself, I look at it as an awesome opportunity to get more money in there at a lower price. So I always look at it as an opportunity. Um, last year, 2022, when the market was falling, you know, you turn on the news, they make it seem like the world's ending. The amount of phone calls that I got from people saying, will we ever recover from this? And the answer is yes. You know, it's it's it wasn't nearly as bad as people thought. Um, but sometimes people have that knee jerk reaction. They, they get a statement or two in a row where they say, wow, I've lost x amount of dollars should i get out and get on the sidelines until the economy recovers mm -hmm. the problem is, is by the time you feel comfortable with the economy recovering the market's usually already recovered and you've missed out on that potential upswing so you know i think if you look at you know the february march april may and june of 2020 um that was a great i mean the market absolutely collapsed that month during covid because of all the uncertainty and then it had a rapid you know recovery Mm -hmm. But a lot of people missed out on that recovery because they really wanted to wait for us to kind of get out of the woods a little bit. Um, but oftentimes when you feel comfortable, it's, it's, it can be too late. And what are some That's time? It's a long way to say when you make some investments, especially when you have time on your side, I'd recommend, you know, buying and holding and, and weathering the storm through some of the, some of the volatile times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Totally sound advice. And it's so hard to fight the, inner emotion that we have as humans, especially when it comes down to money, because money really matters a lot in people's lives. 
Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's easier said than done, you know. Right. And uh, you know, sometimes it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback and say, "Hey, if you just hold on, it'll all work out." Um, easier said than done. Well, let's put it that way. Definitely. Uh, what are some common times that you think people should be reaching out for expert advice? I think when it comes to plan design and getting organized, um, I think especially, you know, when you're when you're early in your working years, you build up a lot of, you know, a 401k here, a 403b there, an IRA, an investment here. Um, you build up a lot of different products. Um at a certain point, you want to make sure that all of these are working together towards your end goals. If your end goal is retirement, it doesn't make sense to have everything in non-retirement accounts. If your goal is to keep money liquid for maybe an investment opportunity to maybe, you know, buy a second home, buy a rental property, it doesn't make sense to have all your money tied up in retirement accounts. So I think it's really important to make sure that your investments line up with your own individual plan. And just because you hear someone talk about what their plan is or, you know, that doesn't mean that's what your plan should be. You know, it should be in line with your values and what's important to you. Everybody's different, you know, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. But it's all about making sure you're as efficient as possible and taking advantage of the different instruments that are out there um, to best leverage those, especially the tax codes that line up with your goals. Nice. That That's really solid. Definitely driving home the point that everyone's personal situation is different and should be treated as such. All right, lastly, to close off this two-part series, we're going to fast forward now 20, 30 years. Someone is at the end of their career and they're asking themselves, when can I touch this money that I've invested for my retirement? I think that's probably, uh, we saw our parents go through this decision-making process of when is it time for me to retire? And some of that is probably job-specific, um, but talking specifically about some of these retirement accounts, I think a lot of people are curious, when can I touch this money? Sure. So the easiest answer is once you reach age 59 and a half, um, why we couldn't choose 59 or 60, I don't know. We have to be difficult. But at age 59 and a half, whether you're working or retired, most of these retirement plans allow for you to take the money out penalty free. Um, so age 59 and a half is a very easy way to kind of look at it is under most circumstances, you can access the money then. Um, there are some tools like the Roth IRA, you are able to access the principal a little bit sooner. Um, so, uh, like I mentioned earlier, you know, you can access the principal as long as you've had the account open for a certain amount of time. Um, you can't touch any of the growth inside of the Roth, but you can access some of the principal before that age of 59 and a half. Um, what I would say is even more important is when you start taking money out of these accounts, it's very important to have a strategy as to which pool you're going to pull from and why. Um, the reason I say that is if you're looking to take out money and you're still in a relatively high income bracket, you know, maybe it's, you know, you're still working, um, but you have an opportunity to buy, to buy a vacation home and you want to take out some of your retirement assets to buy that. Um, those are the years we'd want to leverage a tax-free bucket because you're already going to be in a high tax bracket. We don't want to take out more pre-tax assets that would bump you up potentially even another tax bracket. You get hit pretty hard in taxes. So that would be a great year to leverage um, your Roth IRA. Um, maybe the year you retire, you wait a couple of years to take social security payments and you have a couple of years where your taxable income is very low. That's a great opportunity to tap your pre-tax investments because now you're paying it at a much lower tax rate. So 
everyone always talks about diversification for investment purposes, making sure all your eggs aren't all your you know eggs aren't in one basket. Um, but I think it's also important to diversify your tax situation in retirement. So that's why it's ultra important to have some taxable assets, some tax-free assets, because you can really leverage the tax codes um, depending on your situation year to year. Perfect. That's great. Um, this has been a great discussion, very informative um, and very useful for myself. And I think hopefully a lot of the listeners who are listening in, uh, thank you for all the advice you've given. Uh, I'm going to leave the listeners with my top five pieces of advice that I got from you. And you can chirp in and say if you agree or disagree or if you would add anything. Uh, but I'm going to go with number one, and this is no particular order. Number one, uh, start investing while you're young. Number two, start somewhere where you're comfortable and then annually try and push yourself to invest more and more. Number three, um, any strategy is better than no strategy. And I think you kind of hit that point with what you were just recently talking about. Uh, number four, uh, know how you're going to retire. So like, like we're strategizing here, know which accounts to tap into, know which ones are going to be wise to wait on. Um, and number five, we had two books we were going to read. What money mean? What, uh, remind me the name, the two names of the books. Uh, the psychology of money. Psychology of money. And, and the power of zero. And the power of zero. Perfect. Anything you'd add to that? No, I think that sums it up pretty well. I would say, uh, you know, most importantly, start as soon as possible. Doesn't matter the amount. Um, something's always better than nothing. Um, oftentimes when I talk to someone, I always like to say, you know, you can either start saving a little bit now or you'll be forced to start saving a lot later. Um, so that just kind of ties in. So one and two is, in, in my opinion, the most important thing. Start early and start where you're comfortable. Challenge yourself to increase it a little bit every year. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tracy. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your advice. Thanks, Kenny. Thanks for having me on. All right. I'll talk to you later.